nero, 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 Occhio destro dominante. Right eye dominant. Rechtes auge dominant. Right eye dominant. Heire eye dominant. Right eye dominant. Right eye dominant. This is the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. I am your host, Nick Toro Jr. For today's episode, I'd like to take you on a little time machine trip back to the 1980s when I was a teenager growing up in suburban New Jersey. And the musical soundtrack of those days was comprised mostly of Bruce Springsteen or heavy classic rock broadcast on the radio. But I was a little bit more sonically curious, so I was very interested in the sounds that were coming out of England at the time. And oftentimes I'd make a trip to an actual record store and I'd buy actual vinyl albums. And oftentimes those albums had artwork and photography that was created by today's guest. His name is Brian Griffin, and Brian uh, is a photographer. He's still active today, and he was known primarily as a portrait photographer and did editorial and commercial work. But Brian also had carved out a niche for himself in the world of music photography, not necessarily taking photographs at concerts, but instead photographing portraits and doing album cover photography for many of the day's most popular artists. And so if you look at records from the 1980s out of England, let's say Ultravox or Susie and the Banshees or Elvis Costello or two bands in particular that I'm quite interested in, Echo and the Bunnymen and Depeche Mode, you will see the work of Brian Griffin. So that's why I reached out to Brian and asked him to be a guest on the show, and he graciously agreed. And so that's where our conversation goes today. You'll have to indulge my music geekery. We go pretty deep on a couple of albums in particular, but I hope you find this conversation as entertaining and as enjoyable as I did. So without further ado, here's my conversation with photographer Brian Griffin. So, uh, Brian Griffin, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. It's a pleasure. I am. I'm. I'm thrilled to talk with you today. Um, I grew up in the late '70s, early '80s, uh, staring at a lot of album covers that you are responsible for, uh, which I will definitely jump into and talk about. But I, before we get to any of that, I would love for you maybe just to tell a little bit of your your origin story of how you, you know, where you grew up and, and how you started and what led you into the world of photography? Um, girlfriend falling out with me, actually. <laughs> was my girlfriend. I was uh, 20, 20 years old when she, she went off with someone else and uh, I was devastated. And uh, I worked in an office. I was um, a pipework engineering estimator on nuclear power stations. And uh, I looked at my life that surrounded me, nine to five work, you know, office job, get a train every night to Birmingham, train back from Birmingham every night, well, five days a week. And uh, it was going to go on for the rest of my life. And I thought, wow, I've got to get out. It's given me inspiration to get out of this, this, this world. Um, not out of the world, but maybe, maybe out of the world, I don't know. But anyway... Um, well, I, I grew up in a very industrialised area. You probably looked it up. On, I mean, it's the, it was the heaviest industrial area in, in the world, virtually, in the, in the 19th century, certainly. Um, and even in the, the 60s that you started me talking about, it was pretty industrial. It was like the Ruhr in Germany, probably a bit like Pennsylvania or somewhere like, like Pittsburgh, that. Yeah, um, like Pittsburgh, yeah, like coal country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was really industrial. I'm so happy to still be alive, actually. I mean, the amount of fumes I must have must have had the intake of, or, oh, sorry, 
took that took the fumes outtake and my took my lungs took the intake um, and the noise and everything. It didn't both inspired me. The area inspired me tremendously, but it also, you know, it was not a good place to live if you wanted to stay away from any pollution. <laughs> right. So that that was the area was called the black. Is it? It's still known as the black country. Still known. Everyone loves it now because it's a real tourist sort of tourism, incredible tourism there now. It's very famous, you know. It's an area where maybe if an American flew into Heathrow, London, he'd stay in London for one night and then get up to the Black Country. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Whilst you know, fifty years ago, he'd like do anything to stay out of the Black Country. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. So that being said, it seems to me, and I, you know, I, obviously I, I did research on your story, but just for the sake of the discussion, mm-hmm. coming from that very industrial area and then making your way into an artistic career eventually. What was that? What's that journey like? Because it seems to me that it's almost counterintuitive to the environment that you grew up in. I mean, you are talking about sort of getting out, but how many kids at your age were dreaming of a, you know, like a, of a world in, in art and design and photography. Didn't know where this latent, this latent talent was. I mean, I was just a basic guy from the back streets of an industrial area of a country, and with no indication of the talent I possessed. Which, however, people may feel or think about it, it, it was just extraordinary how it just gradually seeped out of me when I became a professional photographer, and well, before that, when I was at art college. Um, it's incredible. I don't know. I don't know how it happened. If, I, I always think there's someone, someone or something, is looking after me. Huh. I don't know what it is, but it must be because the, what I've produced at times um, just absolutely astounds me. Actually, <laughs> astounds me. I was good at maths and good at cycling, but I. Good at art? I'm not really certain at that time. Anyway, um, it's just come out. It's just flowered over the last 50 years. It's been incredible. So clearly, uh, your photographic career really took off. You were in London at that time. I left art college in 72. uh, And then I came to London. Because in those days, before all the internet, all the emails and everything, uh, there were three centres of photography in the world, probably, like Paris, London, New York, maybe Tokyo. Uh, you had to go. I, had, I went to the obvious one, which is the easiest to get to, only 120 miles south of where I lived, which was London. So I left there. I left uh, art college in 72, and then I went down to London in 72 to become, make my way as a professional photographer. I thought it was incredibly difficult, almost the definition of impossibility was to start in photography, even back then. Tell me about that. What, what was so challenging about that? Challenging because no one would give you a job if you hadn't done one, and you, you couldn't do one unless you'd been given one. So it was an impossible situation. You had to meet someone who was enlightened, who could see potential within you, you know, um, in your work, in your college portfolio. Someone who could see that. And I met a man, actually, a man from Switzerland called Roland Schenk. He was the art director of a magazine in the 60s uh, in Switzerland called Du, D-U, Du. Very famous magazine, a beautiful magazine. And he said that I reminded him of Robert Frank. And I just went, <laughs> what? I'm- Remind you, Robert Frank, I'm just a student, you know, and Robert Frank, I'm kidding. I didn't say that to him, but I'd be kidding. I mean, I said, oh, really? And he started my career. Uh, he started off in a very small way, postage stamp photographs in Management Today, which was the magazine he art directed, took postage stamp uh, portraits of businessmen around Britain, uh, 15 pounds a time, I think it was, or something. And I grew up from postage stamp portraits of businessmen to where I am now today. <laughs> so 
at that time, that's that's sort of like the the door opens for you professionally. And I throughout your work, I, I have seen that uh, beyond your world of, of you know music related photography, portraiture or I won't call it necessarily industrial photography, but it seems like that corporate, corporate photography, photography yeah. has. I would, it looks like that's been a, a constant thread for you uh, professionally throughout your career. That is correct. Um, so where does the music, how does the music photography start? Well, the music photography for a start is only a, a, a small proportion of my total output, of course. It started in, um, in about 78, 1978, when I visited a record company, because there were record companies springing up everywhere out of, out of little shops, out of, I don't know, upstairs somewhere. There were lots of independent records starting post-punk, post-punk. Uh, that was the period. It was the period of post-punk when I was, punk lasted for one year, 1976 or something. And uh, I started in like 77, 78, so I was post-punk. And um, I went to Stiff Records. They looked at my portfolio. They were all full of businessmen, as you quite rightly said. And uh, like corporate work and portraiture of, say, of famous politicians, famous people for magazines. I worked for all the magazines, all the both on business and both uh, like the Sunday Times magazine is a famous one. And uh, all, 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 all editorial, I did loads of editorial work. And um, they looked at and I hadn't got one rock and roll picture in my portfolio. But they gave me an album cover straight away. I just went there and they gave me an album cover. Uh, I think they were doing so much. So many album covers were coming out back then. Tons of them because they gave me one <laughs> straight away. And which was it? It was a, a guy called Graham Parker. Oh, yeah. And the band was The Groomer. And that was 77. 78, I had a studio. So what, I was trying, what I'm trying to say is that when we reached 78, from 77 to 78, I had a studio where all the bands could come to my own studio down in the dark east end of London. And uh, I did carried on doing all my editorial portraiture. I did all my corporate work, my advertising. I had so much work. And the music, music work was only a small proportion of it. Although I did loads of, as you probably know, loads of album covers and single bags and things. Right. Uh, let's talk a little bit, uh, I, if you'll indulge me, the, just the music talk and the spe yeah, sure. specific album artwork. So clearly you've created iconic images for the music industry, not only band portraiture, but also just standalone imagery. I'm thinking a lot about, like I could rattle down a list of sort of a who's who of the you know 80s musicians, English musicians specifically, and you've hit so many of those. The the ones that that spoke most to me were Depeche Mode, and also uh, Echo and the Bunny Men. Uh, and those two, it seems to me that specifically Depeche Mode seems like it covers sort of a, a dual approach in in your work. That there's obviously the portraiture, um, where, although I think like the Echo and the Bunny Men work just kind of. Uh, leverages portraiture a little bit more, but the Depeche Mode artwork, uh, specifically, you know the the early albums. There's a very overt aesthetic direction to those that, to me, transcend just straight, you know, band or music related photography. I want to talk a little bit about how your relationship with Depeche Mode started. Uh, what that creative process was like and where the ideas may have come from? Well, in the case of Depeche Mode, certainly the early albums, um, especially um, the uh, anything that was industrial, you, you could say that uh, A Broken Frame was sort of a worker. Uh, obviously, uh, Construction Time again, definitely, and also maybe some great reward to a certain extent. And I was really involved with promoting the worker. As you probably know, my, the whole of my uh, oeuvre or my um, my work is dedicated to promoting the working person. 
Um, I'm really, I've, I've always wanted to push the worker. So Depeche Mode, it was the worker. With Echo and the Bunny Man, it was more conceptual, where the band would just be roaming around somewhere in, in, in the, in the uh, environment. It could either be next to the sea, as in heaven up here, or next to, next to um, a glacier, as in... Um, as in... Um, a porcupine. Yeah. Or in a forest, as in, some, uh, in, in crocodiles. They were always, they always had motivations. Maybe that was more conceptual in a sense that going to Bunny Men, whilst I want, I mean, I think Depeche Mode sensed that I was really involved in photographing the worker. All my work has been involved in, a, in a some way or another, uh, in times politically and uh, other times just gave, giving respect to the working person. We seems to get little respect, really, apart from observing his weird goings on, or his weird ways, or his lifestyle, or whatever. I wanted to promote him, you know, the, the worker. I wanted him to be. I wanted him glorified. So um, obviously, both of, both of those album series of albums come from a different standpoint, really, uh, but they're a strong one. Um, well, let's yeah, let's well, let's maybe folk. Yeah. Let's talk about the Depeche Mode work first. Then uh, yeah. I do have questions about the Echo and the Bunnymen work as well. But it it seems to me so you're you're already sort of uh, highlighting. I think that there, there's a difference. I think even sonically between clearly sonically between those bands. But the Depeche Mode uh, relying so much on on synthesizers or non you know human sound elements and then so as as their sort of musical career uh, developed moving more into an industrial sound really anyway or mechanical sound and it seems to me that the photography parallels that this whole idea of you know i think about you know the the work specifically around uh construction time again there's there's it's almost like this uh illusional photographic representation of what they were doing sound wise and so that to me makes i mean i you've you've done portraits of them and that you know i think they fall in line with sort of where you went with other musical acts at that time but it seemed to me that it's for the lack of a better term epic or or i like this iconic idealization of the worker in the landscape or in the environment. Um, what do you think about that? When I, when I think about inspirations, particularly the depression Mode work, I was like inspired by both Soviet and German imagery, really. And it's pretty obvious, um, you know, that after the, uh, the Russian Revolution and the way they perpetuated, uh, you, know, you know, like whether it was a, a farmer or whether or it was uh, an industrial worker, they were all glorified poster-like images, really, uh, of social, well, political posters, really. I was very inspired by it. And it was also social realism, really. And um, I was inspired by both Germany in the, in the 30s, Prior to Hitler, just just prior to Hitler, maybe Lenny Riefenstahl's work, um, maybe coming back to um, to to Russia, maybe you think of some like um, art at that time, Lisitsky, uh, um, uh, Malevich, uh, all, all those guys. Um, I mean, I, I just was totally inspired by, uh, certainly in terms of uh, Depeche Mode. Um, social realism, really, you know, the build up to the Second World War in terms of Germany and post Russian Revolution in terms of Russia. They were my inspirations, and uh, the cinema was also an inspiration as well. Um, I, I mean, I sat through so much cinema, um, and also I think Depeche Mode sort of picked up, we, we picked up on each other, neither of us interfered with each other, they didn't push anything 
of their their intake into into the album covers, and I didn't push any of mine. They read me, and I read them. In a way. Uh, we seemed to come on a mutual you know, a mutual understanding, and left totally alone. They did their music. I never listened to any of the albums before I shot their albums, mm. and they never interfered with any of my photography whatsoever. We just left each other totally alone. We did our thing, and it just came together. Uh, like in other words, their music was there on the on the on the uh, on the album, and then my photograph wrapped around it uh, as an album cover. Um, it just was magic in a way. How it worked, and we never ever interfered with each other. We never even objected to each other until the very end. Yeah. So in essence, you would have a a concept for the album artwork. You would execute it like you would just present it options and they would just like and they would just run with it absolutely they would say something like well we would talk it through you know we it wasn't a surprise it, uh, it wasn't like okay no oh, oh, oh no they oh, we, we set the, the parameters uh, uh um a worker in a cornfield blah 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 with a sickle or a scythe and i photographed both of them you know sickle or a scythe or it would be a, a, a worker with a sledgehammer up a mountain, you know yeah. what I mean? And, and um, it would be um, so loose. I could then decide where to go to photograph the, the worker, who the worker should be, how he should be dressed. Yeah, so it would be very, very loose framework uh, from the meeting. But it would be scythe, uh, sickle, cornfield, um, would be uh, maybe a Russian peasant would come with as well or a Russian worker, rather. Uh, as I said, worker, upper mountain, male worker with um, a, a sledgehammer. And then I would, it gave me the opportunity of, of taking photographs. Yeah, so what were the budgets like? My first album was Speak and Spell, which was done in my studio, which is literally half a mile up the road from where I live now. Of course, like everything in Britain, it's a block of flats now and not my studio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, the budget then, this was 90, when was the speaking spell was 1980, I think, yeah, yeah. was £1,000, my fee was, which now would be, what, three, 4000 I can't remember how much it would be now. I haven't correlated mm-hmm. it. Probably with, um, uh, with going up the mountain in Switzerland, of course, would be, uh, would be great. I don't have it to hand because it's so many years ago. Yeah. But um, obviously, we, we we did it really quickly. I mean, it's pretty. I'll, I'll put this in perspective. Like a broken frame and uh, construction time again was shot within a working day, and um, we, which was less than a long working day. It was just like probably. I mean, we drive there. We probably like. 10 o'clock in the morning to mid-afternoon for a, for, a, for a broken frame. And, of course, the rain coming down, which took away the opportunity of spending more time because we were all huddled inside a location vehicle because it was teeming down with rain. Uh, going up uh, up the mountain, that again, that was a day shoot, you know, not a long day, just like a – it was like winter days. They were both winter days. Um, so there were not long days. There were just normal daylight days in the winter. Right. The, the, the broken frame photograph, conceptually, uh, you, you had the idea, you were challenged weather-wise. It seems like the convergence of, of the elements that happened for that photograph, it seems like everything just kind of came together at, at a perfect moment. Were you aware of that when you took those photos that there was something special on, on, on film? It was, that's interesting you say that because in those days, this is way back before computers and everything. As you know, we're talking early 80s. We used Polaroid in the back of the Hasselblad camera in those days that would check that the camera was working, that we were exposing everything correctly. Because I was starting to use a number of uh, uh, flashes, you know, flash something like 200 watts seconds, 200 joules, really like very, very almost like the flash on top of your camera. 
um, like really low power. In fact, I've rebought some of them. They're downstairs here. From those days, I saw them on uh, eBay and <laughs> bought them uh, secondhand. They're 45 years old, whatever. So we had those set up with plastic bags over the top because it started to rain. And um, But I'd gone to America in the late 70s, as I said earlier, and I'd noticed photographers were using flash outdoors. Now, you normally have better weather than we have in England. You know, we have blue skies, fluffy white clouds or whatever. And then you can balance the light, you know, beautifully in combination with those, with those natural elements. I started to use a multitude of lights around the subject, which I did with a broken frame. And I did with um, uh, construction time again. And um, so I placed them. I, I looked at paintings. I looked at great masters, old masters. Uh, I, I have always looked at painting, always, always. My library is full of it. Always look at painting. Um, and uh, I employed this multitude of lights around the subjects, case of a cornfield, the worker in the cornfield. And I had to put, uh, I put um, a warm gelatin filter on to make the corn look, corn was grey, actually. <laughs> I had to make. I mean, I had to make it look warm and friendly. Corn, and I put a, a light on there, and that gave me three lights to use around this object. the subjects. The lights are like so much power. The lights are almost in the frame. I use like flags to so they don't get any mm. flare coming into the lens. Right next to the subject, and right next to it, and we took the photograph. And I used all this. I wanted to do, to do this technique of uh, flash and daylight at the same time and pull the Polaroid out the back. And I cannot tell you when I tore it apart to have a look at it after half a minute or whatever, I nearly fainted and we just could not believe our combination of our lighting with the daylight, the minimal daylight of the day and how and where we put the lamps, like a backlight, a front light, a side light, all that. Oh, it was just like, we I just exploded. Two young boys running around the field with our knees up like, yo. Oh. <laughs> it was just incredible. And I couldn't wait to give it to the record company because it was just incredible. Mm. Ah, just incredible. And uh, I took it back, took the film back to, to, the, uh, to the labs, of course, and then they, 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 the film was delivered to the studio. And uh, Daniel Miller, the head of the Mute Records at the time, came around, and I think his head exploded when he saw it. Saw that. I mean, that is exactly the tranny. I mean, we didn't have any digital computers or Photoshop right, or anything right. there. What we got, you you see on that cover, what we had, that is like just get take the tranny, print it, and it's just incredible. Just incredible feeling. I can't tell you what it was Amazing. Like. I, could, I, I, I could only imagine. It sounds great. There, there, there are a couple of things, and this is just, uh, again, this is my, my personal fandom coming out. But, you know, we, I mentioned uh, the Echo and the Bunnymen. Obviously, the, the, the band appearing in the cover photos, uh, very different than the Depeche Mode work. But also... I think those photos define the character of the band in, in a lot of ways, certainly from the standpoint of, of I, I think even going back to crocodiles and you were talking about introducing lighting into an environment, lack of a better term. I think there's psychedelia references just to the lighting and that kind of connects with, I think what they were doing musically, but then we move on to something like uh, heaven up here or porcupine or uh, ocean rain. And I don't know if this is, if the dynamic was different with echo and the bunny men, were they more involved with how they were being seen or presented in the photographs? No, not at all. No, not at all. They were young men. I mean, these were young men. You know. Yeah, now, before you um, go there, you, you, you probably had at least 10, 12 years on most of the guys. Oh, uh, yeah, I did. I was 30 years old, and they were about probably 18 or something like that. I can't remember the exact age. You were an were. adult. You were them. an adult to them. I was, yeah. <laughs> I was like a middle-aged man to them. The difference was 
I didn't have that detachment that I was talking about with Depeche Mode, that we had a very satisfactory way of going about our work. We did it really well, both of us, in our own way. With Echo and the Bunnymen, I became part of the band. I felt I became part of the band. I was their friends. They came from Liverpool. They were really, they were very similar to my sense of humour. They enjoyed my humour and my weirdness and the way I am, and I enjoyed theirs. We, but we laughed at each other all through the journey of those four albums. We really enjoyed each other's company. It was a really, really good feeling. Uh, it's a different, different setup altogether, you know, different altogether. So that being said, then, like the idea for, let's say, Heaven Up Here, um, was that just you had pitched an idea and, and said, like, I, I, I envision I this, this photograph? How did that come about? No, no, I was I was told um, by the record executive or the, or the, the record company boss, uh, the first album, which was Crocodiles, photographed them in a wood, psychedelic in a wood, you know. So I was told what to do, but no one, no, on both sets of covers, there was no input from the record company apart from telling me the basic concept. There was no representation on the shoots whatsoever, They're getting in the way of my creative, whatever, creativity. Um, I was told, like, you know, psychedelia, like you said, uh, in, a, in a wood, in a forest, for crocodiles. Then we go to Evan up here. Evan up here, uh, the band with load of seagulls, you know, going around them. <laughs> That's all I was told. But, I mean, there were practical issues. One was that the, the wood was near London. It was only 30 miles out of London. And two, the, the, the beach for him up here was uh, next to, the, next to the, uh, the studio they were recording. Mm. Um, so both were physical, uh, easy situations. Yeah, so, but then uh, Porcupine, it, where was, I mean, the, the, are those glacial formations or rock i mean where where was that uh porcupine was uh the the, the uh, golden falls or gulfos it's uh actually about one and three quarter hours drive out of Reykjavik. wow so again you know one and three quarter hours it's not a long journey i believe it or not iceland you can do massive journeys i, I know iceland really yeah. well now uh, I had a partner who was Icelandic, lady who was Icelandic. I've been around Iceland. But you can drive like 11, 12, 13, 14 hours, no problem. But this was only one and three quarter hours uh, away from Reykjavik, where we were in a hotel. And we all But that, that photograph, and I think that even, um, you know, like I said, I, and it's interesting because you're saying the, the record companies were – I guess art directing or say, okay, so go out. This is sort of what we want. I mean, you go out and, and execute. To me, it was, th they were fostering a certain persona for the band by just making those sort of like environment decisions. Yeah. And, and, and as a music fan and in America, no less that this, this conveyed a, a, an aura, I think to to the band, just the bands in general. I think, you know, to to your credit, you introduced elements of a persona that, as a as a listener or a fan discovering the music, it's part and parcel to. It's just to me, it's as valuable as as the music being made is. You know how they're being presented, and and I look at the album cover for Porcupine. And I see your work and it's like there's formal consideration, you know, like it's just not the band in an environment. It's a band. The composition of the photograph is intentional. The the formal qualities of it show in, in a lot of ways, I, I think something of a signature of yours is there, there were certainly lighting is it has been important, but there's formal compositional elements to your work that I think because I'm looking at like. I could look at the photograph of uh, Ultravox Vienna and then I could look at 
I was looking at your Olympic photos from 2012. Um, yeah. And, you know, those are band photos. <laughs> they look like you, they, they, they really they feel are. like, I mean, in a lot of ways, yeah. they're, it's, it's, you are bringing your formal and aesthetic style to those. And it, to me, it, it was interesting because it was like, I don't know who these business, I mean, these, you know, uh, Olympic, uh, business figures are, but like you treat them the same way, which I find really glorious. Uh, I, I do want to also just talk about just, uh, you got to tell me the story of the ocean rain cover. Um, because, uh, that looks to me, uh, and knowing that it was shot on film and knowing that you're, you're dragging lights into probably a cave or something and, and how that, imagery so perfectly matches the music i would love just to hear uh some story behind that i suffered a bit from anxiety actually in the 80s i had a tremendous amount of work i had personal problems uh, i had uh, lifestyle problems i was much in demand overworked i was in a bit of a state really and especially when we got to the point of Around that period of ocean rain, like the mid eighties, sort of, um, and they were recording in Paris, Echo uh, the and the record company wanted me to go over to Paris and photograph them. So I said, "Okay," but then I thought, "This is crazy. I'm going over to Paris to photograph them. We've, I've tried to build up a situation of the Bunnymen being out in a natural." environment and now I'm going into a city. This is crazy. I don't agree with this at all. So anyway, I flew there with my assistant and um, with my simple lighting sort of thing. And um, we were going on by the side of the by the side of uh, the Seine uh, to the studio. They were working in where they had an orchestra or part of an orchestra. It's very orchestral parts of the, the Parts of ocean rain. And um, there was strong sunlight coming into the taxi. And we were passing like railings, like it caused a stroboscopic effect uh, of light into where we were sitting in the taxi. And it really affected me. I started to go like as if I was going to have an anxiety mm. fit. Uh, really horrible anxiety is. I mean, I suffered for it, from it during the 80s for a number of years. It's really suffering. And um, anyway, that passed. And we went to the studio, we went in the studio, I saw this orchestra and the bunny men. And I um, said, I've come here to do the album cover. The record cover wanted me to do the album. And I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do the album. They said, What do you mean, not going to do the album? I'm not going to take the picture. It's not right that we do the picture here in Paris. It's not the right thing to do. And uh, so I, I said, cheerio, lads, I'm going home. So I just went home with my assistant. We caught the plane back. There was no, no train in those days. Plane back, a return fare and everything. And then I phoned up and I said, I'm sorry, I didn't do the album cover. I came back. I said, I don't want to do the album. But I'd spoken. I'd spoken to Jake Riviera, who was at that time the manager of Elvis Costello, who I'd also worked with closely over the years. And he said, well, I, 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 I've got a cave down in, um, below Bodmin Moor, down in the southwest of England, down in the, the Devon Cornwall, down in Cornwall. He said, and I've got a boat down there as well, and there's a lagoon in there. Why don't you go down there? So I proposed this to the company. They, they, they were like mad with me, furious with me. Because they, and they, um, and I said, look, I, I've got an alternative, uh, alternative location. Um, it's a cave down in Cornwall, and then we can get them in the cave and light it and everything. And they, the, the record company accepted it. <laughs> they, they were quite happy about it. But they got me because I'd done, the, um, I'd done a, a video of The Killing mm -hmm. Moon, which is off that mm -hmm. album, but just to do in the album cover, and then, because they released the single before the album, etc. And I'd gone over budget because I didn't know anything about videos or anything about film production. And I'd gone 3,000 pounds over budget. 
And they said, well, you've got to pay for the album, uh, the album shoot now, because you've gone over budget by 3,000. So I had to pay for the album cover. We do the Ocean Rain album cover. Um, so then we went down and the band came down. It's all down into Cornwall. So I guess about five-hour drive from London, whatever, from Liverpool. It's even longer. Um, and we did it in that cave. Um, it's in Con Glaze Cavern. Cavern, Con Glaze Cavern. I used the lighting company. They bought their their big lamps and that, their, their, their HMIs and stuff. And I lit the cave, you know, with all these HMI lamps. And then I put the band in, in the boat, you know, and they went and they went out into the lagoon. And um, it was filmed, actually. It was filmed, part of it's, you can see on, it was filmed by Anglia t- Television. And, um, and it's part of it on my website in the film section, or in the video section. And, um, yeah, but... And it worked out really well. They were really happy with it and really good. But I also, I haven't told you about, we had a fight as well about Heaven Up Here, which is two, two albums back. I didn't mention this because I photographed their beautiful looking Mac and their, the band in total silhouette, yeah. like 50 yards away. Can you imagine what it was like when I went back with four silhouetted figures with seagulls over the top of them? They've done already them crazy about that. <laughs> I really annoyed them. Bill Drummond, the manager, and also um, Rob Dickens, who is the record, uh, the, the, the label manager, whatever. They went crazy about that as well. So I had, I put up with quite a bit, really. <laughs> I haven't done a lot of the things. But which... ultimately, uh, great results because we're we're still talking about these records decades later like i said as 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 a kid actually holding those records in my hand and listening to the music it's i obviously and uh, you know this this has been much discussed i think as things have become digitalized or you know from see it's most important your feelings are most important that's what we i photograph for your feelings right for a person to go back, excuse me, I know I've butted in, but excuse me for butting in, but they could hold the album cover because it's like a big picture, isn't it? The album cover is 12 inches square and they can hold it in front of them and listen to their music in their little private rooms, probably, or in their bedrooms or whatever, and like see it and then dream on, you know, with their music, the music and the visual, which is lost really now. It's lost. Absolutely. Now. And it's- and your description of it just captures it perfectly for me you know i grew up in in new jersey in the suburbs and um for me that experience as you just described was so uh formative and and allowing me you know i mean i i created a career in in you know visuals in in photography and and video myself and to uh i think a lot of that is grounded in those those formative moments where you've got the headphones on, you're listening to the music, you're projecting whatever dreams or imagination onto those images that are in your hands and how integral that is. And also, I think also going back to the time when you, when you were creating those images, it seems to me, and I think I talked about this earlier, like there was a certain escapism or or exoticism or even like you were, you know, you mentioned you were referencing uh, Russian and German art. You were looking to these sort of artistic movements that I think, you know, they make their way into your work and inform how you create it. But then as an audience member, I'm consuming that and it's informing my own creative development. There's a continuum there, which I think I'm grateful that I'm grateful that uh, to have experienced it firsthand. And I think it is something that gets lost with today's, you know, I mean, like everything is so uh, you're inundated with imagery and everything's just on a small screen and like that. I, I I'm so grateful to have had that experience, um, and and to also get a chance to talk to you about it. The, the you know, 
and and really hearing like the it's it's like here's another layer of things that to me are so etched in my own memory and and a visual vocabulary is just such a a, a treat to to hear these stories from you, Brian. Oh, thank you. That's most kind of you. Uh, yeah, I, I just tried my hardest. I, I really, really, really worked hard at every single photograph I ever took professionally, or ever do now professionally. I worked so hard at everything. I mean, you, I mean, it wasn't the same environment uh, then as it is now. I mean, when I took a photograph for Depeche Mode, we end up on the album cover. And it, of course, all my friends would see what I'd done because they walked down the high street, looked in the record club window. My parents, my, my friends, my family, they all saw what I did. That was my calling card then because we had no social networks then. It was our calling card. It's well to get more work. And so you wanted to make it really quite special. Uh, you really did. Um, now it's a different set of circumstances, although I still want to make it special because I'm so happy to have made it special back then which I think I did on a lot of occasions. Sorry, I'm blowing my own trumpet a bit. But um, it's helped me to survive now, in fact, you know, because people really want to see my work, Want like you want to hear me talk. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it's helped perpetuate my career, really, um, in every way. Uh, you did mention... You uh, you have a, a, a book that you're about to put out, the Mode book, Can you, if you want to just pitch that a little bit and we'll we'll definitely i can share that information as well what what are the details of that book well um the details of the book is that it's the most beautiful book i've done really i've spent uh it was all crowdfunded the book was crowdfunded i actually um self-published most of my books throughout my career uh i like to sort of dictate what the book looks mm -hmm. like uh how it's produced and how it will appear and uh, how much it is. Um, in the case of Depeche Mode, I, I made the book as, well, as cheap as possible, really, um, because it's, to, to publish the book has cost as much as the income for mm. the book and the crowdfunding for the book. Um, so the book is called Mode, and um, Mode is a book of, the album covers I did for Depeche Mode, uh, all the photographs I took, which is not a lot. It's about 120, 130 pages. It uh, contains all the photographs I took for Depeche Mode and of Depeche Mode. And also it features the video I did in 98 called Only When I Lose Myself, the first time ever. And there's um, Roger Burton, who is the production designer of the of that particular film from England here, a very, very talented man. He accompanied me over there because he's one of my dear friends. And we did this film in America, in Los Angeles mm. and New York. And it's an extraordinarily dark film, which again, when I delivered it to the record company, they just... Oh, they just like, oh, God, we've got to change this somehow. <laughs> and they tore it totally apart. They tore it totally apart, but they couldn't destroy it. It was so filled with, with imagery that is so strong that they could not destroy it. So the book also contains that, which is a real gift, the first time ever. Uh, yeah. So now is the, the book is for sale now? Is it available? The book will be launched uh hopefully this coming weekend oh wow so you're hot off this so we're literally we're like four days away from the fact that book arrives here and it's launched in four exciting. days exciting awesome it's exciting I, uh, yeah I, i'm going to jump on and get myself a copy so uh, on my website we're just we're, we're constructing the website at this moment you know. <laughs> To accept orders. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's important, and and I think that that uh, that even ma makes me appreciate uh, you taking the time out and talking with me even more, Brian. Uh, I think we can wrap it up, Brian Griffin. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me. Uh, it's it's been an honor. 
It's my pleasure. I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So there you go, folks. My conversation with photographer Brian Griffin. I really enjoyed talking with him and going down memory lane into the music world of the 1980s. I hope you enjoyed it as well. I will share links to many of the images and albums that we discussed in the conversation. I'll also include a link not only to Brian's website, but specifically the link to the new Mode book that we discussed at the end of the conversation. I'd also like just to take this opportunity to remind listeners, if you haven't done so already, please leave me a review or a rating on the podcast platform of your choice that will help me get the show in front of even more listeners. I've been very uh, gratified to see the, the listens going up in this season number three, and I hope that continues. Uh, I'd like to also remind you that if you want to go back and check out old episodes, you can get lots of information at my website, which is righteyedominantpodcast.com. And if you scroll all the way down past all the episodes down at the bottom of that page, there is a place where you could leave comments or questions, and I always love to hear from listeners. So uh, look forward to hearing from you. And then lastly, I'm just going to tease a little bit of uh, some news that's coming up later this fall. I will be attending the Paris Photo Photo Festival in beautiful Paris, France in November. And I'm looking forward to seeing lots of new work and making contacts with galleries and curators and museums book publishers and working photographers and hopefully lining up lots of new topics and interviews for episodes to come so more on that later Uh, i think that's all the news for now i want to thank you for listening this has been the right eye dominant podcast i've been your host nick toro jr and until next time stay well This podcast has been a production of RightEyeDominant.art. The music for today's episode is brought to you by The Conant Project and Yazar.